Well, I forgot to mention, my name is Jacob Smith. I'm the teaching pastor here at Southwood, uh, and I want to welcome you to Grace. If you are new here, you're joining us uh, about midway through our year-long study of the book of Romans. We started this back in the fall, took a break over Christmas, and now we're picking right back up. We're in Romans chapter 9. So if you have your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 9. You can go there on your phone, or we'll have the verses on the screen. But Romans chapter 9 Uh, We're going to be studying the entire chapter. We're going to skip like a few verses uh, in the middle, but I'll I'll summarize them for you. But we're going to be in Romans chapter 9 all morning. And what we're going to see in Romans 9 is is almost this, this shift. It feels almost like this hard left turn from where Paul was in Romans 8. If you remember in Romans 8, he he closes that chapter just expounding upon and and expressing his gratitude and his his thankfulness for the the security that comes by the work of the Spirit for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. He talks about how there's nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ, that once we have put our faith in him, that our eternal life, that our eternal salvation is secure. It's this amazing, beautiful passage where he's just 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 expounding upon the glory and the mercy of God. And this is something that is encouraging, right? It should bring comfort to us, this end of chapter eight. Because every single one of us, we, we need, we want someone or something that we can depend on, right? This is a, a part of us. Even those of us that consider ourselves a little bit more of a lone wolf, right? We like go around town and we think, I don't need nobody. Like we, we do depend on something, right? Even if it's not another person, like we depend on maybe our vehicle to move. We depend on our job to pay us. Like we, we need other things or other people outside of us that we can depend on. And when we have that, when we have that sort of external confidence, what that does is it gives us this inward comfort, and it's something that we crave. It's something that we want, something that we need. And it's something that we maybe experience in beautiful ways, much like these guys in a car right here. That's a bro. That's a bro right there. Right? We all need someone that's in that back seat that's just going to start belting the Natasha, whatever her last name is. We need that. Right? Bettingfield. There you go. We need someone to back us up. And what's amazing is that the Lord has promised to us that he is faithful, that he is dependable. And that's what Paul just kind of came out of Romans 8 talking about, right? The dependability, the faithfulness of God. And yet at the beginning of chapter 9, it feels like almost this boom, just this this sharp turn. Because Paul's going to essentially address the concerns or the questions regarding the faithfulness of God. And he's going to talk about something very personal to himself. That's why he starts in Romans chapter 9 and verse 1 saying this. He says, I'm telling you the truth in Christ, right? I'm not lying. For my conscience assures me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. What in the world? If you have your Bible open, if you're on your phone, you can look at the end of chapter 8, right? He's talking about just this, this amazing power and strength of the love of God. 
that it is undefeatable, it's undeniable, that victory is assured, that salvation is accomplished. And yet he immediately says, he doesn't say, hey, and that gives me such peace, that gives me such comfort, that gives me such hope. What does he say immediately after this? He says, I'm telling you the truth, I am filled with sorrow and anguish. How can this be? Verse three. For I wish, I could wish that I myself were accursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, my fellow countrymen who are Israelites. Paul says, how amazing is the love of God? How, how amazingly faithful is the Lord? Jumping into the song from the back seat, do, being a bro. He says, how amazing is the dependability of God? And yet, I'll tell you that I am, I am filled with unceasing anguish. I have this sorrow in my heart because I know that there are some, there are those that, that I was with, that I grew up with, these, these fellow countrymen, these fellow Israelites who have missed the mark. They have rejected the Messiah. And so Paul is saying that he is so heartbroken, he is so burdened for the lost, for the, the Israelites. Again, the, his neighbors, his friends, his family. He says, I am so burdened for them that I wish there was some way, even though there's not, I wish that there was some way that, that I could just even curse myself, that I could, I could cut myself off from Christ for their sake. If, if I could somehow give up my salvation for the sake of these other people, I would do it. That is a, that is a burden for the lost. That is a heart that is broken for those who've rejected Jesus Christ. It's brutal and yet beautiful. And Paul says, this is what I wish I could do. I, it's impossible. He says, but I wish I could give myself up for these Israelites. Why? Because he says it's so tragic because it was to them belong the patriarchs. Or sorry, to them belong the adoptions as sons and the glory and the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from them, by human descent, came the Christ, who's God over all, blessed forever. Amen. In other words, Paul is essentially, he's raising this, this concern, this critique that, that wasn't just exclusive to him. It was, it was a concern, it was a question that was being brought up by many early believers, especially those that grew up Jewish and came to faith. They're saying, how could the Lord abandon those people, right? How could God fail or forsake his chosen people, the ones who, who had the law, who had the patriarchs, who had the, the, the right to be adopted as sons, the glory, the covenants, the law, the temple worship, the promises? How could God fail or forsake them? It feels like a problem. It seems like a pretty big issue. And so is God unjust? Is God a liar? Or is he just cruel? This is the problem that Paul's going to address with the remainder of chapter nine. And he's going to answer his own question. He's gonna answer this, this concern that he's raising, right? Even as he is conflicted within, as we should be too. 
when considering the, the destruction that sin has brought to the lives of those, well, to all of us, but the sin, the, the destruction of sin in, into eternity for those who've rejected Christ, Paul says, I, I'm conflicted about this, but, but I know that my confidence still belongs in the Lord. I know that I can still depend on the Lord. And he's gonna walk through the rest of the chapter and kind of lay out these aspects, these, these attributes and abilities of the Lord. He's gonna essentially tell us that he, we can still depend on the Lord's promise. We can still depend on his power. We can depend on his plan. Even when we don't understand it, we can rely upon his perfect will. But even as we go through this, please hear me right now at the start is that we don't read these things. We don't, we don't read about God's you know, prevailing power and faithfulness to those who love him. We're not, we're not reading this as, as, as a big old pat on the back. We're not reading this thinking like, yeah, well, thank goodness I'm not those, you know. We're reading this as people who are, should be burdened. We're reading this as people who should be broken, who should be conflicted. Just as Paul was. Hearts breaking for the lost around us praying that God would grant them faith, that God would bring them to himself. Reading this as people who who don't deserve salvation more than anyone else. But we're reading this as people who have been saved by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. And so though the world fails, though people stumble, we can trust that our God is good, that he's still in control, right? This is where Paul goes in verse six. He says, it's not as though the word of God has failed. He says, it's, it's not that God has, has failed them. For not all those who are descended from Israel are truly Israel, nor are all the children Abraham's true descendants, but rather through Isaac will your descendants be counted. Okay, so Paul's about to essentially, you know, highlight some truths, some, some things that, that his audience would have known intellectually, but maybe hadn't connected all the dots, right? He's not giving them new information. He says, right, the the Lord is moving through these descendants, this true Israel, right, these true descendants. He says, they're not all just people that were born of Abraham. It's not the bloodline. It's not the background. It's not the DNA test that makes you a child of the Lord, uh, one of these, these, you know, chosen descendants. And he gives them the example. He says, we could know this from day one. Why? Because God told Abraham that these these descendants of promise, they would be counted through Isaac. And Paul's audience knew what hopefully we know is that Abraham actually had two sons. And Isaac was actually the second born. In those days, your firstborn son was the one who inherited the family name. He would, you know, carry forward, get a double portion of inheritance. Your firstborn son was like the most important one. Abraham had a firstborn son named Ishmael. And yet Ishmael was not the chosen path. Ishmael was the product of Abraham choosing to take matters into his own hands where God had promised him. He says, hey, I'm gonna gonna give you children and I'm gonna bless Sarah, your wife, with a child and you're gonna have all these descendants, all these generations. Abraham is waiting and waiting and waiting for the fulfillment of that promise and he decides, "I I can't wait anymore. And so he takes one of their servants and he sleeps with her with Sarah's blessing and they, and that servant gives birth to a son, Ishmael. And yet God tells him, that's, that's not it. That's not the path. That's, that's not what I told you. You didn't trust me. You took us into your own hands. And so the children through Ishmael, not only were they not part of the chosen descendants, but they became a thorn in the side of 
Israel. That the descendants through Ishmael became the, the, the enemies of God's people. So Paul's saying, look, you, you, we all kind of know this, whether or not we connected the dots, that just because you have a, you know, an ancestral line to Abraham doesn't mean that you're part of God's chosen people, right? Verse eight, he's just reiterating this. This, is, this means it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but rather the children of promise, are counted as descendants. For this is what the promise declared, that about a year from now, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Paul's saying that we are not, again, we're not saved by our bloodline. We're not saved by our background. It's not based on whether or not our our families went to church. It's not based on whether or not our parents, you know, really love Jesus. He says it's it's not a, a, a flesh thing. He says instead, the children of God come through a promise. It's true of the Israelites. It's true of us today. And Paul says in verse 10, continuing into the next generation, he says, not only that, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our ancestor Isaac, even before their kids, right? So even before Isaac and Rebekah's children were born or had done anything good or bad, God began to move. God made a choice. Right, and he's explaining here in his authorial note, says before they did anything, right, before they made any choices or did anything good and bad, this is also that God's purpose and election would stand, not by works, but by his calling. He says that it was said to Rebecca that the older will serve the younger. For just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated all right, so Paul's continuing with his history lesson, which I love as a history major. And Paul is saying, look, we saw it with Abraham, right? It wasn't through Ishmael, it was through Isaac. He says, in the same way with Abraham's son Isaac, God spoke to Isaac. Rebekah told them, hey, it's actually the younger son. You, you, she had twins. And he says that the younger is actually going to rule over the older, in other words, God is taking the normal script of firstborn son takes all the privilege. He says, I'm flipping it all over again. And the way that God described it with, through one of the prophets is he says, Jacob, the, the younger son, I've loved, but Esau, the older son, I've hated. Now, this term that he's using for love and hate, we can also translate it as essentially uh, choosing and rejecting. So it's not that the Lord had a, 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 a vendetta against Esau. It's not that Esau like ran over God's dog and he's like, oh, I hate that guy. You know, like that's not what it is. The Lord is saying that I have chosen Jacob and I have rejected Esau. And again, Paul's very clear. It's not because of what they did. It's not because of their ability. It wasn't because of their competency. But it's simply because this is God's right and rule as God that he has chosen by his mercy and grace to move through one line and to not move through the other. And we are all inheritors of this promise, the promise of eternal life. We are all dependent upon God's work. We're dependent upon God's word. And we've received this incredible promise that one day this world will be done away And even beyond this world, we will still have life in the presence of our God in perfection and splendor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That is what we have been given. This is the promise that God has made. 
And this promise should be, you know, it should generate hope and comfort for us. It's the promise that Paul just talked about at length in Romans chapter eight, that we, in fact, can inherit eternal life, not because we earned it, not because we did it, not because we did right or wrong, but because we have simply believed in the name of Christ, because we have simply been called by the Lord according to his holy calling. And knowing that there is this end of the tunnel, right? Knowing that there's this, this glorious point on the horizon that gives us hope. I, I remember... A few years ago, uh, my wife and I took our kids to get flu shots. We were all getting flu shots, and they were even younger than, like maybe like six, four, and two years old. And so we go to the clinic. We're getting flu shots. For some reason, I don't know if it was like during COVID or after COVID or something, but it was like they lined us up in the hallway. So we're all we're standing in a long line in the hallway, us and like other families and people, and just you know one by one, they're calling you over to this like shot zone, and they just give you the flu shot. So we're waiting and we're preparing our kids. We're like, hey, you know, it's, we're getting a shot. Like, you know, and they'd like gotten shots before. We're like talking about it. Like, okay, remember it hurts a little bit, but hey, there's, it's gonna be okay. Like we had some pride. I think we were like, we're gonna go to Dairy Queen after. And they're like, yeah, Texas stop sign. We're like, yeah, you better believe it. And so as we're waiting, we're trying to build them up. We're like, hey, it's gonna hurt. It's gonna hurt, but there's, there will be an after, right? There's life beyond. There's life beyond the poke. And so sure enough, we get up to the people and everyone in line behind us, they're like, no one's got little kids like us. They're all like, everybody's kind of waiting with bated breath. Like everyone's like, how's it gonna go? And when we go up to the lady, like one at a time, boom, 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 they all get their shot. And somehow by the grace of God, they all just, they just take it. Smith kids don't quit, right? And they were just <laughs> they're like, yeah, give me another, right? Like, let's go. And they all took it. And I was, I was obviously incredibly proud and felt so thankful that, wow, that was so uneventful. But not only that, but unbeknownst to us, everyone was so invested in our journey to the shot zone that the rest of the line down the hallway, people, as soon as our kids were all done and the child was like, wow, y'all did great. The, just down the line, down the hallway, people just start erupting into applause. <laughs> like these complete strangers like, yes, Smith kids don't quit, right? Like they, they got it. It was amazing. And it was because my kids knew we had, we had successfully communicated to them, hey, there is a beyond, there is another side, right? We're gonna get through this. And so because of that, they could withstand the pain. Paul says, look, we've been given this promise by the Lord and, and yeah, it should give us comfort. It should give us hope. It, it should give us confidence. And yet the difficulty for us, the difficulty even for this imaginary pushback that he's explaining in Romans 9 is that many times we become so focused on maybe our present or our near future expectations that what happens is our view of eternity becomes dim and fuzzy. Like when you're lining up the perfect photo shoot shot and you're taking a picture and you've, right, you've got that foreground, mid-ground, background and you're trying to like get the focus in. Right? That's why they pay photographers the big bucks because they can make the person in the front look so clear and crisp and then everyone in the back is just like a blurry mess and you're like, yeah, who needs them, right? That's, that's photography, I guess. Like that's the goal, that you would be focused on the subject and then you kind of, you know, you, you dismiss, you dim the other objects. Our problem is that so often we become so focused on how this is gonna go in my family next week, or we get so focused on how my kids are gonna perform in this sport or in this activity. I, I become so focused on how comfortable I feel around my roommates or, or how my friends are serving me. I become so focused on these things 
that eternity winds up in the background, fuzzy, out of sight, out of mind. Now, we should care about our daily lives. God cares about our daily lives. God cares about the way we conduct ourselves in our friend groups and in our workplace, in our classroom, in our families. God cares. We should too. But repeatedly in Scripture, we're told that we cannot forget, where we cannot think that that's all there is, right? Our hope is in heaven. Our, our treasure is stored there. We're thinking about the things above. We're seeking the things above. We're, 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 con- we're living this life with excellence as unto the Lord, but with eternity in view, in focus. So Paul is telling his audience in Romans 9, we should be hearing this truth that, yes, there is an eternal life that is promised to those who put their faith in Christ, and that should bring us hope, and it should bring us comfort, even as we experience a conflict in our hearts and in our souls. Because, again, we should be burdened. We should be mourning with those who mourn. We weep with those who weep. Right? We weep for the destruction that sin has brought. We weep for those who are far from the Lord. But rather than taking that and, and just assuming that these unmet expectations should bring distrust in the Lord or distress or, or, or just disappointment in God, the Lord says, what I want is your dependence, right? His desire for us in that disappointment is that we would just depend on him. I heard another pastor speaking about some of the loss and grieving taking place in the church in Thessalonica. This pastor was talking about 1 Thessalonians, and he said that, that so often our loss, rather than losing something, right, a hope, a dream, a goal, a person, rather than allowing that loss to drive us further from the Lord, that loss should, should turn into longing. We long for the day when God makes all things right, when Jesus returns to bring us into glory. Our loss should lead to longing. So yeah, I, I didn't want her to get sick, right? We, we have these experiences. We don't, I don't want her to get sick. I, I didn't want him to walk out on his family. I didn't want him to take his own life. I didn't want her to, to struggle with infertility for years. We don't want these things. And we never rejoice in the destruction of sin But in that disappointment, in that loss, we turn to the Lord. We say, God, help me hold to your promise. We confess to him where we feel conflicted, trusting that he is the one that will provide the comfort that we need. Paul says we have this promise of the Lord that we can depend upon, that we are recipients of. He says there's also the power of the Lord that is absolute, that is reliable, As we remember his promise, we rely on his power. He says this in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not. Right? He says, so did God fail? No. Is God a liar? Absolutely not. He's not unjust. For he says to Moses, verse 15, that I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on human desire or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. He says, it's the Lord's power. It's the Lord's might. It's the Lord's choice. I'm going to have mercy on those who have mercy. I'm going to have compassion on those with whom I have compassion. And it's not dependent on our ability. Again, if it was what was, what's ultimately fair and just, 
is that all of us, because of our sin, because we've all chosen rebellion, because we've all chosen death, what is just, what is fair, is that we would all be doomed. That none of us would receive mercy. None of us would receive compassion. And yet the Lord told Moses, Paul's reminding us that God says, but I will intervene. I actually will extend mercy. I actually will extend compassion. And it's not based on your ability. It's not because you earned it. It's not because you're better than those who, who miss it. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, another example, verse 17, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may demonstrate my power in you and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Right, so Paul's drawing this example from Exodus where Pharaoh is refusing to let Israel go. He chose to rebel against the command of God. And so the Lord just allows him to continue running in that rejection. And what God tells him is that, hey, this is the reason I've allowed this to take place. This is the purpose. Why I've allowed this evil ruler to impede the progress of my people for a time. He says, I have raised you up. I've, I've, you know, you wouldn't have, Pharaoh wouldn't have had the power that he had. He wouldn't have had the, the kingdom, the empire that he had without the Lord allowing it. And so God says, I've raised you up. And it's also that my power would be demonstrated and that my name would be proclaimed. So that's why I'm allowing these things to happen. Right? Lord is telling Pharaoh, we should know that God's power is going to be revealed. It's going to be demonstrated either in us, either through us, or his power is going to be revealed against us. Those are our options. The power of God will be revealed. It will be demonstrated through us or against us. And, and Pharaoh chose against. And so then God has mercy on whom he chooses to have mercy, and he hardens whom he chooses to harden. Again, if you read the account of Exodus, you'll see there are a number of times where Pharaoh initially, when Moses brings him the command, hey, you should let God's people go. I'm here speaking on behalf of their God, the one true God. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And yet, as you read through the account, the, the 10 different plagues, there were times where Pharaoh hardened his heart. There were times when we're told that the Lord, God, hardened Pharaoh's heart. In other words, the Lord allowed him to just continue on his path of rebellion. And so Paul is reminding us that, look, it's, it's all in the Lord's power. Ultimately, he's sovereign. Ultimately, he's in control. His power is absolute. That's what we can rely upon. It's not our ability. It's not our accomplishment. It's not my power. It's the Lord's. Right? It's, it's the same principle that I felt like was communicated to me over and over again as a student at Texas A&M. That as we were going to football games, right, I was in there, I was at A&M early 2000s, and the football was, well, we were doing okay, right? But it was like not the best. Uh, not everyone was super excited. But one of the things that they would tell us over and over, we st they started telling us that at fish camp, it got repeated to us over and over again, especially my freshman year living on campus, was like, hey, don't forget, no matter how that football team, no matter how those boys are doing out on the field, he says, well, you know what's going to happen? Aggies always win halftime, boys. Always win halftime. Why? Because that Aggie band gets out there, right? And the guys with the tubas are like, boom, 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 right? It's amazing. You're like, yes. Except there was this one, <laughs> one weekend when I was in college that, that, like, there was a hurricane or something. Prairie View A&M came and did our halftime show. 
<laughs> I'm just saying. You know, they were really good. So, uh, but we still won. Uh, but we, we recognized or we were told, hey, no matter what, even if these areas fail, you know, there's still the power of the Aggie band, like the North End, like it's going to be great. And what Paul is telling the believer, he's telling the church in Rome is that, hey, the Lord has power. The Lord has might and authority that we can't even come close to. It's absolute. And so we can rely on that, even when we don't understand what's happening, even though we're disappointed, right? Even though we don't understand his plan, which he's gonna address here in the next verse. It says we can trust, we can rely on the power of the Lord, that even Pharaoh, you know, the, the most powerful ruler of that time in the ancient world, says he was simply there as, as an object for God to demonstrate his power and might against so that God's name would be proclaimed around the world. The most powerful dude in the world at that time. He's like, he was just, he was just there to show how much more powerful God was and is. And yet for us, even though we're told this, and maybe we understand this on an intellectual level, so often we find ourselves ignoring the inevitable, right? I remember as a kid growing up and I was blessed Parents loved the Lord. We were in church. I was going to Sunday school. And I remember us talking about like the end of days, right? Revelation, which we studied in here uh, just a year ago or something. It's a blur, right? But we, I remember studying it as a kid in Sunday school. And I remember hearing about how the Lord has written, right? In the book of Revelation, the Lord has said, hey, this is how it's all wrapping up, right? We don't know the exact timing of it, but we know what's going to happen. He says that, you know, his enemies are going to be vanquished. That Satan and, and death itself and, his, and Satan's armies that he's met, they're all gonna be cast in the outer darkness. They're gonna be locked away. They're gonna lose. Ultimately, God wins. That's like you read Revelation, God wins. And so I remember reading or learning that as a kid and thinking, like, well, what in the world? Like, why then why is Satan like still at work now? Like, why are we told in scripture to be on guard against the attacks of our enemy, that our battle's not with flesh and blood, but it's with the spiritual warfare? Like, what, why is that still happening if it's all gonna end up like God wins anyway? But then I had this moment of revelation of recognizing, wait, but, you know, I guess Satan, maybe he, maybe he knows, right? He's not dumb. He's, he knows what it says in the Bible, but Either he thinks it's untrue or he's just chosen in this time to ignore the inevitable. And I realized that for myself, I was like, you know, I guess actually I do that. Right? When I sin, when I disobey the Lord, when I reject his wisdom and his instruction for my life, what am I doing? Essentially, I'm ignoring the inevitable. I'm living as if I don't already know how the end of the story or how the story ends. And I just remember that and being, oh, it was a lot for like a seven-year-old. Ooh, like that's, but that's where I was. And we all fall into that trap with our consistent disobedience. And it's a struggle in this area. That, and God forgives. God's grace abounds. But when we go against the wisdom and teaching the instruction of the Lord, it's, it's this rejection of what is in fact inevitable. And so in life here and now, we should be praying for the power of God to not just strengthen us, but for his power to be displayed in others. We want to pray that the Lord's power would manifest, would be revealed, would be demonstrated through us so that his name would be proclaimed across the world. We can depend on the Lord's promise 
rely on his power, and we can trust ultimately in his plan. This is how Paul closes the chapter, starting in verse 19. This is where we're going to skip around a little bit. So Paul brings up another objection. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Why does God still find fault? For who has ever resisted God's will? He says, how can God condemn those people who have rejected him, right? He says, if, if it's based on God calling some, it's according to the purpose of his election, a call based upon his own calling. He says, why would God ever find fault in those who have missed the mark, in those who Paul described in Romans 1, have rejected the truth for a lie, have chosen to worship creation rather than the creator, those who have deserved the wrath of God, of whom we all are in that camp. We are all born into sin, deserving of the wrath of God. So Paul says, why would God still condemn those? Why would he still find fault in them? Just because they haven't responded to, just because they haven't been called by his spirit to salvation. And this is where Paul gets a little sassy. Verse 20. But who indeed are you? A mere human being to talk back to God. Does what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right to make, for him, to make from the same lump of clay one vessel for special use and another for ordinary use? It says, but what if, right, what if God, willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience the objects of wrath prepared for destruction? Paul says, who are you, who are we, to talk back to the Lord. Mere humans. Humanity. Looking at divinity. Who are we to, to, to question, to, to, to push back, to talk back to him? He says, what if, doesn't God have the right, he brings up this illustration of a potter and clay. He says, what, what right does the clay have to, to talk to the potter and be like, dude, what are you doing, right? What if God willing, desiring to demonstrate his wrath and his power, endures with much patience these objects that are prepared for destruction. That have, in other words, the, literally the term here, the Greek verbiage is very important. These are objects that have prepared themselves, prepared themselves for destruction. And what if he is willing, verse 23, to make known the wealth of his glory on the objects of mercy that, he's that he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. He says, who are we to question the plans of the Lord? He says, ultimately, we have to remember, even though God is merciful and God is kind, that God has, 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 has descended, that Jesus Christ stepped out of heaven and onto earth to live among us, to take on flesh, to, to, to relate to us, that we would know we have a high priest who can, has compassion for us in our weakness and in our struggle. He says, we have to remember that God is still God and we are not. Yes, God lowers himself and, and makes himself known to us by his mercy, by his grace. But ultimately, end of the day, he says, don't get confused. God is still God. And you are not. And so I'm skipping a few of his references from the Old Testament, but he says in verse 30, what shall we say then that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness obtained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, even though pursuing a law of righteousness, did not attain it. 
He says this, again, he's going back to that original question. How could God fail or forsake the people of Israel? He says, ultimately, what are we going to say? Right? How does this make any sense to us? That the Gentiles who weren't given the law, that weren't given the prophets, they weren't given the patriarchs and the promises, the right for adoption as sons. He says, they, not pursuing it, yet obtain righteousness, not by their work, but by faith, but Israel misses it. How, how do we reckon that? How do we make sense of that? He says in verse 32, why not? Because Israel pursued it not by faith, as if that were possible, or as if it were possible by works. And they stumbled over the stumbling stone. So this is why Israel missed the mark. Because God doesn't call us, he doesn't choose us based on our ability uh, based on our accomplishment, not based on our background or our behavior. He says he chooses us. He works to us. He gives us salvation through faith, not by works. And Israel stumbled over the stone that was prophesied in Isaiah, where God said that I'm laying a stone in Zion, a stone that will cause people to stumble, a rock that will make them fall. And yet the one who believes in him will not be put to shame. The one who believes in him, Jesus Christ, will not be put to shame. That is the plan of God, and his plan is divine. And that, that's on some level, we just have to accept that the Lord's plans are greater than ours. We're told that repeatedly in Scripture, and yet it's still difficult for us to accept, right, that we are finite beings seeking to understand an infinitely great God. We're just the little fish in the fishbowl sitting on the kitchen counter who's going to live for three days, and we're looking out and we're trying to understand the, the functioning of like human civilization, right? A goldfish is never gonna quite understand the nuances of micro and macro economic theory, right? Like that's never gonna happen. In the same way, we are trying to understand an infinitely great God as finite beings and it's simply not possible. That's, his plan is divine, meaning it is other. It is not of us. And it's hard for us to accept what we don't understand. I get that. I'm, I'm with you. It is difficult to accept what we don't understand. I don't want to invest in a vague or confusing like business venture, right? If someone comes to me and says, hey, puppies, Uber, profit, right? If that's just like, we're going to call it pup, right? I need $10,000. Like I'm, I'm not going to put my money down. It's hard for us to accept what we don't understand, and yet the Lord is saying, I want you to trust me. I desire your dependence. And what Paul is saying is that we can, in fact, trust. We can, in fact, accept. But it only comes by grace through faith in Christ. And so what do we do? We pray for faith. We have the same response as Jesus' disciples when they were just, just so shocked by some of his teachings when they were shocked by the things that he did, when they were shocked that, they got, that Jesus wanted to empower them to go forward and continue ministry, what do they do? Time and again, they asked Jesus, they said, Jesus, we need faith. Like, we need you to increase our faith. And we are in the exact same position. We should be praying that God would increase our faith. We should pray for our faith, but we should also be praying for the faith of others. Remember, all of this chapter is written in context of Paul, whose heart is broken for those that are lost and far from God. So my question for us is who will we pray for? Who will we pray can, comes to faith in Christ? Who will we pray continues in faith, strengthened in their faith? 
this is what we pray for. This is what we bring to the Lord, this need for continued dependence and trust. And so this morning, what we're going to do, similar to how we pray over the requests during worship about once a month, in the same way, we're going to take some time to pray collectively, corporately, through these issues, through this, these questions. And it's something that I love that we do here at Southwood, that we would just trust that the Lord has a plan for where we are, for who we're surrounded by, and that God loves to hear us praying with one another. God loves to see, right, brothers and sisters united in Christ, independence on him. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna take just a few minutes to find a few people around us, right? Could be people you came with, people you're just now gonna meet, that's great too. And you're just gonna share super briefly your answer for one or both of these questions. Right? And you can be as specific or as general as you wanna be. All I ask is that you'd be brief. But very briefly share with the one or two or three people, whatever in your little group, say, hey, I, I, I want to, I need to be praying for Bill. I need to be praying for this group, that they would come to faith, that they would continue faith. Share very, very briefly, and then let's take just a few minutes to pray with one another, that the Lord would continue to work, that his name would be proclaimed, that faith would be strengthened in us and for those in our lives our hearts are breaking on behalf of. All right, so find those people, introduce yourself, share, pray. I'll wrap us up in a few minutes. Ready, set, go.